Hello and welcome back to Hey Look Listen. My name is Liam Sheehan. Thank you for joining me and I must apologise. Today will be another solo episode or a very special episode or whatever you want to call it. Um, Time didn't work out for us this time. Again, uh, Jonathan Owen are not able to make it but very soon we will be gathering to record our 20th episode extravaganza which essentially means we'll be returning to the Metal Gear Solid franchise for uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater one of my absolute favorite games of all time and uh, I won't speak for them but no I will they absolutely love it too I know that um, so super excited for that but uh, like I said you know it just wasn't to be for um, this um, this recording session but uh, I thought uh, this would be a good opportunity to do another one of these episodes hopefully it will be a short one this time I'm planning it to be short but um, I'd like to talk about the Capcom 5 while I'm here which is um well, I'll get into it, but it's a group of games that came out in the mid-2000s, um, all from Capcom. And by talking about the Capcom 5, I get to talk about at least three games that I absolutely love. So I thought this would be a, a fun little interesting topic to do while we're waiting for uh, waiting to get to the fireworks factory and talk about Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Which has a man in it who shoots bees at people who canonically in that world was involved in the Battle of Normandy. So it'll be very fun and very exciting talking about that game. I'm looking forward to it. But like I said, Marcy and Owen have busy, cool lives and um, I don't. So I have time to talk about the Capcom 5. I'm just actually, I'm actually living in Sweden now, which is very exciting. I think I mentioned that in the last episode. And I'm just uh, sort of hanging out for the moment, really enjoying it over here, really loving it over here. Managed to get a little apartment, sharing it with uh, three very nice Swedish guys who I've gotten to know over the last couple of weeks. You know, uh, my good friends, my now good friends, uh, Gustav, Carl and Floof. Now, it's not it's not a big apartment, uh, three beds between the four of us, but we're, we're making do at the moment. Um, very easy going guys uh, I, I told them, I was like guys I need to record an episode about the Capcom 5 and they were immediately like okay you know we'll do some quiet activities so they were all, we only have one room essentially in this apartment and they're all in the room with me at the moment but they're you know they're doing their quiet little things you know uh, Gustav is uh, doing some knitting I think, I think he's making a balaclava um, uh, Carl's working away happily on a jigsaw uh, hopefully not the big jigsaw Carl that, that's for Saturday nights no no he, he's doing one of a oh a moose oh great Carl killing it man and uh yeah Floof is um writing his manifesto I um I haven't asked him about that yet what that is but uh god god he, he's giving it gusto I'll, I'll tell you that much but yeah Capcom have always been one of my favorite video game companies in fact you know if I if I ever compiled a list I have a feeling they'd probably be number two after Nintendo maybe you know I, I have things I hate in my heart about every video game company I like but I think I have great affection for Capcom and Capcom have been around for a long time now since the since the 80s I believe and um, there's different eras of Capcom I found that they go through kind of different transitional periods if you go back to the NES and the SNES you have uh you have the Mega Man games, you have Street Fighter 2, that's what was going on then. They actually had the Disney license back then on Nintendo consoles, so you had a lot of, on the NES and the, and the SNES, you had a lot of really cool um, Disney games made by Capcom, like DuckTales, uh, Goof Troop, Aladdin, some really, really cool things. Um, and then, of course, you know, you get up to the PlayStation 1 and uh, the Sega Saturn, and they started making Resident Evil, maybe... 
their most mainstream franchise. I, I, people who are outside of ga- gaming might know Resident Evil the most. Um, I always felt in the kind of PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, Wii kind of early 2010s era, they kind of lost their way a little bit. I, th- I found in a grand sweeping statement that a lot of Japanese companies around that time kind of lost their ways because America was coming out with a lot of really innovative games, like really great games. And there was a kind of a sense at the time that Japan were really kind of desperate to copy what our America were doing to, to sell more copies. And um, that led to a lot of my beloved um, companies kind of going through what I thought was their worst periods. I despised Square Enix at that time. I thought they were absolute, um, you know, just not making... I was about to be rude there, but they just weren't making very good games. And Capcom, I thought, weren't... Wasn't my favorite era of Capcom, as all I say. That's the kind of era when Resident Evil really became an action blockbuster series, and they were they were, they were making a lot of shooters uh, like Lost Planet. Uh, just probably people who really liked that game. But um, I look back on that generation of Capcom with no affection, and I think nowadays um, Capcom are kind of in a in a renaissance. Uh, one of their big things, and um, must be said, this was happening during that generation that I just pissed on as well, is Monster Hunter, which, hand to God, I have not played a single Monster Hunter game, but that is like their big IP at the moment in in Japan, in America, everywhere, especially Japan. That's like a huge thing, but I um, cannot talk about it because I have not played a single one. But um, the Resident Evil franchise, for me, is um, probably going through a golden age right now. Um, they made a Mega Man game that was great. I think um, Capcom are really back on top and they're like a really exciting company and that's always good to see for a company that's that old that they're like exciting. I feel like there's a kind of new blood in them. But I want to talk about what's my favorite generation of Capcom, which is going back to the early to mid 2000s and it's the PlayStation 2 and it's the GameCube era and the Xbox era. I'm not forgetting you Xbox people. But um, it's the GameCube I'm talking about in particular here because um, the Capcom 5 is intrinsically linked to the GameCube. Although I say that it's not actually, but it is. But it's not, but it is. What essentially happened was um, Nintendo came out with the GameCube, their little purple box that could. And... You know, they were, you know, they didn't have the biggest market share. They were destroyed by the PlayStation 2. And the Xbox was this big, exciting thing. And Nintendo were kind of in their own kind of niche cubbyhole. And Capcom, during this era, pitched their wagon to Nintendo in a, in a very kind of... In a very strange move, I feel. So there was a great partnership between Capcom and Nintendo during that era, which I think produced some amazing things. Um, most notably for me the resident evil 1 remake which was a remake of the original resident evil on the playstation 1 that game i think i've brought it up in passing a few times in the podcast that game is magnificent it is like if oh if you want to see level design done done well if you, any aspiring game designers need to play the resident evil 1 remake and it's just so wonderful and i'd love to cover it properly on the podcast one of these days uh but it was strange it was this like kind of almost photorealistic looking like violent zombie game obviously but um why the gamecube it didn't suit it it didn't it didn't suit <laughs> being on the gamecube and capcom made essentially what i would consider one of the greatest video games ever made and that was when they decided to like not release it for you know their their good buddy sony on the playstation which they had done with all all their games before that 
and as much as I love the original Resident Evil on on the GameCube, and I, it's one of the, it's that console's signature titles for me. Um, I kind of feel bad that that was its first home. Like it kind of, Capcom were like, were like, okay, Nintendo, we'll team up with you. We got this amazing game, and Nintendo couldn't really kind of carry them with the sales because you know the, the GameCube was kind of in niche territory at the time. But um, Resident Evil Remake wouldn't remain a Nintendo slash GameCube exclusive forever, of course. And uh, kind of that's kind of true of almost everything that came out on the GameCube. That's why I say uh, the Capcom 5 is intrinsically linked to the GameCube. It kind of isn't as well. Um, everything that was ex- exclusive to the GameCube from Capcom that era would eventually make their way over to PlayStation and over to PC and whatever. But during that time... The story goes, Nintendo weren't doing great, and Capcom were like, we'll help. And they came up with the Capcom 5, which was five games that they would release for the GameCube, with the plan to kind of boost sales. And it it was a project, all the games weren't exactly developed in-house at Capcom, but they were all published at Capcom. And the other thing that kind of tethers them together is that it was Shinji Mikami who oversaw this project, and he oversaw all five games. Shinji Mikami being um, the creator of Resident Evil. And I believe it was Capcom USA who kind of announced, kind of confirmed that these will be five games exclusive to the GameCube. Um, we're we're in the business of helping our buddy Nintendo. And we're, and Nintendo, as always, even to this day, it kind of still has this problem. Maybe a little bit less with the Switch. Nintendo always had a problem with third-party supporters. You, kind of, you buy a Nintendo console for the Nintendo games and you know, there was kind of a, maybe a weaker selection of, uh, of games from other developers. So the idea was, you know, Capcom will release five games exclusive to the GameCube. How is that for your poor third-party support? That's what they were saying to fans angrily, probably. But um, over over time, it was kind of confirmed that that was miscommunication. I don't know, within Capcom or between Capcom Japan and Capcom USA. Uh, for me, they're always... Um, I remember them as games planned for GameCube exclusives but apparently that wasn't a thing only one of them uh, a grand Resident Evil sequel was always intended to be um, a GameCube GameCube exclusive and the other four were just supposed to be games that are coming out in the GameCube but they were going to come out in the PlayStation 2 or whatever as well but anyway all of them including that grand Resident Evil sequel would eventually make its way off GameCube but when I was a child, I used to collect a magazine called Nintendo Official Magazine, which was um, a British publication. You know, I, I'm, I'm not against that. This was before the internet. This was before I was on the internet all the time, you know, constantly being fed gaming news. Um, I got my news by collecting this magazine monthly. And because I chose, even though I was, I owned a PlayStation console and I was buying wasn't buying them myself but I was getting games for PlayStation I chose to collect a Nintendo only magazine so I was getting all my news through a kind of Nintendo filter which is the main reason why I always assumed these games were specifically for the GameCube but I remember when they were on I got them got got my this my this Nintendo official magazine this new issue of it and I remember that they were there the Capcom 5 and it's that kind of I don't know if it's intentional, but it's kind of marketing genius. As soon as they were, like, they could have just announced five games coming out periodically over the next uh, couple of years or whatever. But because they put them in a group, because they grouped them as this thing, a team, 
the Capcom 5, I immediately kind of just wanted to collect them all Pokemon style in that kind of child way. I just like, oh, my, they're releasing five games under the same banner. And they're, and, they're, and they're all suddenly like, even though the games had nothing to do with each other, in my mind, they were all linked now. They were all, it, it was it was like a season of television. <laughs> the Capcom 5 had to be analyzed and enjoyed as a, as a, a collection now. And I was very excited. I remember... Even before I played any of these games, I was following the Capcom 5 very closely. Um, I look back at it very fondly, actually. But the main reason, like I said at the start, I want to talk about the Capcom 5 is kind of to talk about the Capcom 3. Three games are very close to my heart. Two aren't. And I can blow through talking about one of them very quickly because it was never released. The Capcom 5 never became the Capcom 5 unfortunately one game was cancelled well it wasn't even officially cancelled it was kind of just quietly not talked about anymore it disappeared until everyone had to assume it wasn't coming out it was a game called dead phoenix and i remember looking at it in in magazine in that magazine and um it kind of seemed like it you have to kind of (laughs) you have to kind of guess there's not much information about this game which kind of makes it a cool little curio it looked like a kind of a third-person shooter. You were flying around with wings and shooting things. Um, it reminded me of Lilat Wars, uh, Star Fox 64 to the Americans, um, which is one of my all-time favorite games. And as a child, it was like in my top five favorite games. I adore Lilat Wars. When I saw this Capcom shoot 'em up, third-person shoot 'em up, where you're flying around, I was like, oh my god, they're kind of Capcom's version of Star Fox. It was very exciting. Um, there was uh, comparisons made to an old Capcom arcade game called Legendary Wings um, that also had kind of people with wings shooting things and and flying around. But um, for me, it just looked like Star Fox, but kind of crazy and um, all Capcommed up with this person with giant wings. But I can move on. The game never came out. And like I said, it wasn't ever officially cancelled. It just just disappeared and the Capcom 5 never got to live up to its its title, just the Capcom 4. Should have been the Capcom 3 because the next game um, I'm going to talk about very briefly, I want to get on to my main three, is um, a game that I played over one weekend. I never owned it. I rented it at ExtraVision, I remember. Um, uh, Ireland's version of uh, blockbuster videos to the Americans again. I don't know how many people listening in America. I I believe we have a lot of people listening in Canada, though. Yeah. I don't know why I fell silent there. I think uh, I think Floof is wondering why I fell silent too. He's giving me a look. Uh, but I gotta get back to your manifesto, Floof. But the next game is called PN03 or PN03, uh, if you like. I believe it stands for product number three. And I never purchased this game or I never asked for it for Christmas or for birthdays because just simply it got really bad reviews and I was hyper aware of the fact that it got really bad reviews. And I was less mildly devastated by that because the Capcom 5 was supposed to be um, this amazing collection of, of games, <laughs> I hoped. But I remember playing it over a weekend, um, having rented it, and I really hated it. I, re- I remember really going, oh yeah, yeah, this is this is no good. It, it was kind of this sci-fi action beat-em-up shooter thing. You played as this uh, this character. She was kind of like a proto-wannabe Bayonetta in, in my memory. But uh, it was just, 
it was both really hyper and kinetic in terms of it was like waves of enemies coming at you but it, it the gameplay was like really awkward and stilted it um you couldn't move and attack at the same time right? and that was, it seemed like a very deliberate design choice and it's funny i would be talking about the ability to not move and attack at the same time in another game coming up in the capcom 5 as a positive in my opinion but I don't know what was going on with this one. It just, you had kind of had to use the environment to kind of dodge enemy or kind of hide from enemy attacks. And it was just one of those games, you know, it could have had maybe amazing, amazing lore, a really cool setting. It looked kind of distinctive. It was all kind of sci-fi, but kind of Apple, kind of very stark, very clean. But even if it did have like an amazing story or amazing lore, it didn't matter because you, you couldn't, you couldn't, it's one of those games you couldn't play. It was just so unenjoyable to play. You'd have to like grit your teeth and just force your way through it. So because of that, I'd I'd almost like to just move on from it. So why not talk about a game that I actually really enjoy? The game is called Beautiful Joe. Any fans of uh, Last Action Hero listening, that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie has a very similar premise. You kind of play as a kind of a nerdy movie buff schlub who has a girlfriend and they're going to the cinema together. And the girlfriend gets pulled into the cinema screen by this evil, nasty character. And um, your character, Joe, jumps in after her. And inside, he gains the power to become his superhero alter ego, Beautiful Joe. Which, um, I suppose, in a Western pop cultural viewpoint, he's very much kind of a superhero. But he's also kind of a, a Super Sentai type character from Japan. You know, kind of a Power Ranger type character. He has a catchphrase. He says, Henshin a go-go, baby. And he turns into Beautiful Joe. And I bet when I am editing this episode and I listen back to me saying that, I'm going to be super embarrassed. Well, Carl's laughing anyway, so I probably should be embarrassed already. You know, I'll go back to your jigsaw, Carl. Oh, I'm almost done. Oh my gosh, two moose. Two mooses. Two meese. But Beautiful Joe came out in 2003, and even at the time, it was very much carrying the torch of an old genre, this side-scrolling beat-em-up. It's kind of a platform game. You are jumping on platforms, but it's definitely much more preoccupied with being a beat-em-up, which I I thought was great at the time, because I I grew up with the likes of um, Streets of Rage and Double Dragon. So I love the the games where you're just um, scrolling through screens, beating people up. Uh, this game isn't exactly comparable to those but like I said it's it's very much in spirit it's not only just a kind of wonderful revival of what was a kind of um, fading genre at the time if it was it would still be exciting but Beautiful Joe is just one of those games that just it was just bursting with ideas and you know even even I saw that it had a beautiful art style just look at screenshots of this thing it looked like a comic book come to life it was just so visually arresting. I still love looking at it. I love the character designs and then I love seeing the game in motion. Even the game's almost 20 years old now. It's getting there, but um, it's uh, it's cel-shaded, um, which was very much in vogue back then. There was a lot of um, big GameCube games. Um, obviously, The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker was uh, controversially uh, cel-shaded. Um, but what ends up happening with cel-shaded games from that era is they end up aging very well in comparison to games try, trying to be realistic, which... It's a good thing, obviously, and the next game I'll be talking about, the Capcom 5, also happens to be cel-shaded and also happens to look quite good. But Beautiful Joe is just this um, colourful, beautiful, kinetic game. And and what, and what made it a great beat-em-up was um, a clever mechanic at its core. Because Joe has jumped into a film, 
you're essentially looking at the game through a film reel and you the player can manipulate that film reel and that affects his attacks and there's not much to it but it's still just you know it's just still a very clever concept in general it's um it's very unique and but it it plays very well as well it's very satisfying to do so if you slow down the real joe's punches and his kicks become much slower and in the game's uh, cartoon logic that translates to the punches being harder slower punches just whack harder and the sound slows down and there's a great crunch to every punch you land and if you speed up the reel joe's punches become like lightning fast and that makes them weaker but he actually punch and kicks so fast that he actually generates fire so that's kind of used to you know burn enemies but i think it's used as a kind of a puzzle element as well and in its in, in its um sensibilities it was kind of old school as well because it was um a very difficult game i remember i remember following it for months and months um in, in that magazine I was talking about I was dying to play it and even then I was, wasn't prepared for how challenging I found the game on the normal difficulty it's a it's a very punishing game it's one uh, it's kind of um, similar to uh, I find a Capcom a Capcom franchise that I can't believe I didn't mention in my kind of preamble at the beginning a Devil May Cry I always found that Devil May Cry on normal difficulty was really hard and I remember for the first original Devil May Cry on the PlayStation 2, I had to put it down to easy to play it, which, you know, I never liked. But there was a kind of a lot of Capcom games around that time that felt normal on easy, if that makes sense. And their normal setting were like, like very difficult. And Beautiful Joe was one of those games, but unlike Devil May Cry, I remember persevering with it. And it's a very satisfying game. But also, you know, just the nature of the beast. It can be very frustrating as well. It's uh, you. It's all about kind of mastering the mechanics and becoming, you know, just good at fighting in that game. And uh, if you want a kind of breezy, kind of more laid-back experience, it's not the game. It did get a sequel, uh, Beautiful Joe 2, which um, I don't have as much uh, affection for while also admitting that it's as good as the first one. And there were a couple of spin-off games, uh, Beautiful Joe Red Hot Rumble and Beautiful Joe Double Trouble, which I believe was on the DS. But kind of that's it. I think the last uh, Beautiful Joe game came out in 2005. And I, I think it's such a great IP. And if there, if there was any justice, we'd be playing Beautiful Joe games to this day. I don't, I, it's such a shame that it died away. But it also kind of makes it a kind of a jewel of that era of gaming. I always look back at the GameCube, PlayStation 2 era. And Beautiful Joe was always one of the games I remember as one of the best ones. Definitely one of the most unique ones. One of the most striking ones. It was made by. Uh, it was published by Capcom, uh, made by Clover Studios, who similarly are gone now. But um, after they did Beautiful Joe, they did the um, Sublime Okami, and they made God Hand, which is an incredibly beloved game that I have not played. I have to be humble sometimes as as a podcaster, because that's what I am now. I'm a podcaster. But Beautiful Joe for me really kind of exemplified. Um, what I wanted the Capcom 5 to be um even even if even if that was just in my own head I wanted them to be a collection of super unique games that kind of an opportunity to make original unique games and um in that regard Beautiful Joe was a huge hit for me and I recommend playing it if you can track it down the next game in the Capcom 5 I want to talk about is Killer 7 which was not developed by Capcom. It was developed by a company called Grasshopper, published by Capcom, and was the brainchild of one uh, Goichi Suda, uh, better known as Suda51. 
And Killer7 is actually the only one of the Capcom 5 that wasn't ever a GameCube exclusive. It was released for the GameCube and the PlayStation 2 at the same time. And this is actually a fact I only became aware of recently. Um, I'm actually working on a top 20 GameCube list for um, uh, Hey Look Listen's Instagram and Twitter at the moment. Just a little... And I, my, my rule of making that list I was that I was going to put in the description was uh, games are only legible if they began as a GameCube exclusive. Uh, even if they went on to different consoles after, if they were released as a GameCube exclusive, they're eligible for this list. And I wrote my piece about Killer7, and then something in my brain just went, was this a GameCube exclusive? And I went down Wikipedia, and it wasn't. And I really liked the piece I wrote about it, so it's staying in, and I'm just not going to have my stipulations on the rules anyway killer seven is a bizarre game that's the that's the the best word to describe it it's bizarre the plot line is you know it ends up being about a lot of things like um all-encompassing battle between good and evil is kind of um (laughs) at the center of it or in, in in the shadows of its kind of main plot but you know in the elevator pitch is that you play as seven assassins, but they all exist as alter egos within one man, but they can, that man can transform into them if he wants. It's very vague, and you're battling um, a group of terrorists called the Heaven's Smile, and they are laughing, cackling, multicolored zombies who explode. And that's the plot. If I was being all snooty, arty, game critique man i would call killer 7 um a very fascinating gaming deconstruction but if you look at the nitty-gritty of its design it seems almost willfully awkward if i was being polite i could call it rebellious but no design choice in this game is an obvious one and i think we need more of that but if you were to say to me, I played Killer7 for a half an hour and it was not a fun experience, I would completely understand that. It is technically a third-person shooter. You're playing as these assassins, the, the, the titular Killer7. But you can't explore the 3D environments um, as you will. You're kind of set on a, a path, almost like a rail shooter, like... Like a game of Time Crisis you play at the arcade. You can move your character forward by holding A. You can make him go backwards by holding B. But the whole entire game is linear. And then sometimes you'll hear sinister cackling and kind of laughing. And that means you got to go into first person aiming mode. And you can press another button that scans the environment. And suddenly these different coloured zombies are running at you. And you shoot them at their weak spots before they get up to you and explode. And then you hold A and move forward some more. And that's the kind of crux of it. It's, on paper, not a good game. But it's kind of everything else built around that. I I don't know how much I believe in this as a gaming philosophy, but it's very much a game that they obviously came up with. The scenario, the style, the kind of the heart of the game narratively and the, the kind of the spirit of it artistically before they thought about the gameplay and that shows it, it feels like it feels like the gameplay is more of an afterthought to everything else um but it's just but the the entire piece is so interesting as i mentioned it, it, it's cell shaded it has this very comic book manga style kind of like a living cartoon and, and it's very gory 
and it's separated into different levels or missions and they're kind of there there is an overarching plot kind of but they're kind of episodic little stories and they're really bizarre and vague this is not a game that has a story that's very interested in explaining itself rather it puts all the elements in place in front of you and kind of piece it together it's very david lynch it's very takeshi Mike. Even down to the kind of fundamental aspect of who is your main character. There's a guy called Harmon Smith who's in a wheelchair, but this, he, he he's not the Killer 7. The Killer 7 seem to be inhabiting his body and you can transform into them. And they're all diverse, different characters. Um, one guy is a straight-up Mexican wrestler. One, one is a silent, blind guy who throws knives, who's called Kevin Smith, which is really weird. And they all play slightly differently. Not amazingly differently to the point where... You can kind of choose your favorite of the of the assassins and get through most of the game as just that character, but they, they play differently enough. But in the sense that one character has grenade launchers and one character has a magnum, they definitely don't feel like they play differently enough. But you kind of wander through this game and it feels like a drug trip. The Killer7 are constantly being given hints or talked to by strange ghosts. Um, one of them looks like a red-suited gimp. And you kind of, they, they, they talk very cryptically and you kind of piece together maybe their previous victims of the Killer7 who are haunting them or helping them. But like I said, this game is not interested in explaining itself. And I remember being very mesmerized by it. It came out in 2005 and it taught me a very important lesson about um, video games. And it kind of taught me a new way to start enjoying video games. I, I, I realized that games were more than the sum of their parts sometimes and as much as you can chart the course of amazing game design which should always be the forefront of of the industry not to not to delve back into that tedious um, argument of the 2000s are video games art but look just just for lack of a better word video games are art it taught me all the ways video games can be expressive and it made me less mercenary in my view of what makes a good game or what makes a bad game. And I, I staunchly believe to this day that you should play games that aren't masterpieces a lot. Games that kind of don't maybe work in some very important ways, but you, you, you often find gems. You often find some really interesting things that can be done with the, with game design, with the, with the medium. I mean, it doesn't always work out. You might find games like PN03 that I talked about earlier, but still. And uh, this was before the indie scene kind of kind of exploded around the, around the time of um, the late 2000s. And you started getting games like Braid that were kind of suddenly these arti- artistic statements and deconstructions on the nature of games and, and gaming storytelling and, you know, a multitude of other things that... Um, has come out of the, the gaming indie scene. But for me, Killer7 was the one. I always look back at it as like a, a revelatory moment um, in my, my my life as a gamer. And it's kind of funny that it came out in 2005. Um, it was kind of a big year for me because my other big revelatory game actually came out that year as well, uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which, which was really the game that first taught me how to use the gameplay to tell the story. Uh, but I, I won't talk about that here. I'd love to do it in the podcast sometime. I think, put simply, the main thing I got from Killer7 was my kind of desire to not play uniformly good games. 
Um, this is kind of hard to express, but I'd prefer something weird and functional and flawed that does a lot of interesting experimental things. I find you can play games that are very good, brilliant graphics, good gameplay, and you have no real problem with it, but it doesn't do anything exciting or new. It's very by the books. But these days, you see, companies spend so much money on things, it's hard to experiment that often. It still happens every now and then. But I do think there's a slew of games these days that are just very good. And that should be enough, but it, it doesn't feel nourishing after you play it. It doesn't... It kind of feels like going through the motions sometimes. And it, it, like I said, it's very hard to express, but I want something a bit weirder. There's a lot of big games these days that are very well designed and like very good, that are kind of cited as masterpieces, but just feel just a little bit safe. A little bit like eating porridge. And... Yeah, I will take something like Killer7, I'll take something that is strange and flawed, but it aims for the stars and it's experimental. There's nothing better than playing a game that you feel like, I haven't seen this before. This is new, this is a new experience. And that's what I had when I was a teenager back when I played Killer7. And I think I still have it now. I think time has been kind to it in the sense that, you know, it's still a weird oddity within the, the game industry. It's still a grand experiment. But I love Killer7 and I recommend it to anyone uh, who wants to play it. It's on Steam now. It's extremely easy to get. Even give it a go for a few hours. and uh, Or do you know what? Watch it on YouTube if you want. It's just such a, it's just such a, an interesting game. Just experience it. And what is there left to be said about the final game in the Capcom 5? Um, definitely the most prolific game to come out of this little collection. Uh, the most famous one because, you know, it's amazing but also because it's appeared on almost every console since. It's Resident Evil 4. I think Resident Evil 4 is probably my favorite game of all time that isn't in the Legend of Zelda series. I absolutely adore this. And before it came out, I wasn't a huge Resident Evil fan. I Resident Evil was always my brother's games, and I'd, I, I'd watch him play them, and I loved them. I knew all the characters, I knew the lore. I didn't really sit down and play a Resident Evil game myself until this one, which is strange because it's a huge retooling of the entire franchise. I talked earlier about the Resident Evil 1 remake coming out on the GameCube and being an amazing, joyous thing, but that was followed up by another Resident Evil game from Capcom on the GameCube, Resident Evil Zero, which was a prequel to the original Resident Evil, and it had a its whole new idea was that you played as two characters at the same time and you could split them up and swap items with them and Resident Evil was at that point a series that was perceived to be very long in the tooth. It was kind of rehashing its same ideas and mechanics and there was other games coming out in PlayStation 2. The Resident Evil Outbreak games were kind of trying to mix up the formula by being online experiences kind of before the proper infrastructure for good online gaming was on consoles yet. But all in all Resident Evil games were seen as stuck in their ways, antiquated. So the decision came to reboot the franchise in a way with this fourth installment. And it went through a few iterations, a few ideas. Uh, they wanted to, like, you know, get rid of the fundamental thing about Resident Evil, the zombies. You know, that was what the series was known for. It was video game zombie series. They wanted to get rid of that and there was a point you were fighting against evil fog. There was a point you were fighting against an evil man with a hook hand, I believe. This game was workshopped and designed and redesigned. Um, 
it's it's history is interesting in that regard until they finally settled on a rural Spanish theme with angry villagers with pitchforks and and to kind of turn the game from horror into action horror. Resident Evil games were known for having a fixed camera, almost directed, but this game put the camera behind main character Leon's shoulder, which was a controversial change. But Resident Evil 4 would go on to be so influential, it would, it's one of those few games you can talk about that really did birth a decade of a type of game. It influenced gaming for so long. I think uh, the third-person shooter genre that became so popular in the next generation after it on the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3 with your Gears of War, with your Uncharted, came directly from Resident Evil 4. And definitely stuff like Dead Space, which we've covered on this podcast. Please give that episode a listen. Um, I love that game. But I didn't record this episode with the intention on doing deep dives on these games. I just wanted to talk about them as a, as a little collection that they that they were. So I won't do a deep dive on Resident Evil 4, even though it is one of my favorite games. I just kind of want to talk about how perfect a piece of game design it is, in my opinion, in terms of being an action game. And I think the key to that is how it empowers and depowers the player in equal measure. This is a game that in, in, in times can throw waves of enemies at you. And you, and you won't feel like you have enough ammo to fight them. And it, it's rather than being spooky scary like previous Resident Evils, it was just incredibly tense. But, like all Resident Evils, as you'd go on, you'd begin amassing an arsenal of weapons. You'd start collecting grenades, you'd get a shotgun, you'd eventually get a machine gun. There's rocket launchers you can pick up. So... It kind of goes against maybe perhaps what is a fundamental rule of horror, you know. You know, you should feel weak and defenseless against the unknown, against the horror. But Resident Evil 4, you're you're powerful. And 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 that's in the story as well. Like you play a shit hot US agent Leon S. Kennedy, you know. Um it continues Resident Evil's mandate for B movie schlock. He's he has one liners, he has quips, he never seems scared in the story. And you get to embody this character, you get to inhabit him. So I think rather than trying to be all-out scary, Resident Evil 4 really wanted to be kind of a fun blockbuster movie. It's an incredibly well-paced game, and it's a game with a wealth of ideas. So you sit down and begin playing it, and that game chugs along. So many ideas, so many different scenarios, so many different boss fights, so many different areas. It doesn't have the immaculate level design that kind of... The kind of twisted, unfurling puzzle box of levels that you have to suss out. It's a linear game, but I don't think Resident Evil 4 was trying to do things like that. I don't think Resident Evil 4 can be criticized for not being like other Resident Evils because it really wasn't trying to be. This is a linear game that would put you on a linear path through an increasingly bizarre world that gets more cartoony as it goes on. But it has a controversial control scheme that's built very much off of the already controversial control scheme of the original Resident Evils. Resident Evil characters are famously or infamously rigid tanks to control. And, you know, half the battle in those old Resident Evils was just maneuvering your character in the right side of the hallway so you could shoot a zombie properly. And there was definitely detractors towards Resident Evil 4's control scheme at the time, and there definitely is now, but I think I will champion it always. 
And it's what I said about depowering the player. Leon can't run and shoot at the same time. You can't aim and move. You have to put yourself in a vulnerable position. You have to stop and you have to take your gun out while horrifying enemies are coming towards you. And that is tense. That feels scary. But that would feel cheap if you didn't design the entire game around it. And that is the key to Resident Evil 4. It doesn't have bad controls. It has purposely awkward controls. But it works because they designed the game around those controls. Most enemies are slow and lumbering. And even though they're faster than your average zombie, they do run around, they do dodge bullets. They will come at you in very telegraphed, knowable ways. They will throw axes and pitchforks at you in very telegraphed manners, so you see it coming. You know to try to avoid it. You won't always. But the key to that is that when you do get hit, it's always your fault. I find it hard to be frustrated at the game in any real way because it's fair. One of the main games that would sprout from Resident Evil 4 is um, Gears of War, um, made by Gearbox, designed by Cliff Blazinski, and one of the amazing revelations of design that would come from that is the chest-high wall. Uh, it was called Stop and Pop. The idea that you could, uh, the idea that you could get behind cover and then poke your head out and start shooting, which is so run-of-the-mill now, but that was a huge deal at the time. And that went on to influence so many games. What I think it really helped do was soothe the awkwardness of the hitscan. Hitscan is essentially a video game term for an invisible cone that comes out of an enemy. Especially when an enemy is using a gun, like a, a realistic gun that shoots fast bullets. So if the player walks into this cone, they receive damage. And I think this can be quite awkward in a lot of old games. Um, it's kind of unfair unless the game designers put a lot of effort into designing the geography of the space you're playing in and the enemy positions but a lot of the time in old shooters it just kind of feels annoying I'm standing here and an enemy from afar is shooting me and under the hood because you've stood in, into their invisible cone and I think stuff like regenerating health bars kind of came from that because it, it's much less annoying to um if this is going to happen you can regenerate your health and then of course um, cover-based shooters made that much more palatable because suddenly it leveled the playing field you could you could take cover and hide from these invisible cones slash bullets. And that kind of became the prevalent way of doing things in shooters. But what I think personally is more interesting, rather than trying to combat the hit scan in um, admittedly clever ways and admittedly clever um, design ideas, is to just do away with them altogether and have enemies with much more telegraphed attacks. Enemies who aren't just shooting a gun at you and enemies who perhaps don't require you to have to hide and wait. Uh, a lot of cover-based shooters end up being waiting games, you know, wait till you pop out and shoot. And Resident Evil 4 is very visceral and you have to get right up near enemies. And it requires you to vary your tactics a lot. I'm not pitting the two design philosophies against each other here. I, but I am claiming that I find what Resident Evil 4 does much more interesting. And I think it's so important to why that game works so well and why it's like aged so well. You might pick it up these days and it doesn't really control like any game you've probably played recently. If you're young and you haven't played Resident Evil 4, you'll think it, it plays weird. But that's it. It plays weird. It doesn't play bad. And if you're designing a video game, especially an action-orientated video game, 
you should be designing the controls and the scenario hand in hand. They should complement each other. And Leon's weird, awkward, I can't run and shoot at the same time controls completely works for the game Resident Evil 4. It's completely fair and I love it. It's a game that everyone needs to play and hey, good news, everyone can. It's on every console ever. I actually, th- So I actually think I will leave it there because I imagine on um, a proper episode of Hey Look Listen we'll cover Resident Evil at some point. Um, it's a long stretching franchise so we'll, we'll cover it in some regard and I'm sure Resident Evil 4 will come up again but I just kind of wanted to get into that aspect of it. And that was it. Thank you so much. I'm looking at the timer and it did go on longer than I anticipated again. Um, cool, if you made it this far, I'm very thankful. I know it's probably more fun to have the three of us chatting away, but I did really enjoy recording this one just now. So if you made it this far, thank you very much. And like I said, we will be returning for episode 20, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Um, I have not talked about this with the lads. In fact, it's just entered my mind right now as I'm talking into the mic. But, you know, episode 20, I think, is the end of Hey Look Listen season one. I'm bringing up, I'm making seasons a thing. Floof is shaking his head. He doesn't think I should make seasons a thing. But no, I think it's good. Episode 20, the end of season one of Hey Look Listen. Please look forward to that. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed listening to this old chunk of coal talk about the Capcom 5. So all that's left is for me to say goodbye. Or as they say here in Sweden, good. Bah. No, wait, what did I say, Floof? <laughs>